Bismillah, walhamdulillah, wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa man walah wa ba'd. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam has said, whoever treads a path in search of knowledge, Allah eases the path of Jannah for them. We welcome you all to the first episode of Salik Cast, where we ask Allah to make us from all those who tread the path of knowledge, and thus the path of Jannah is made easy for us. To proceed, in this episode we will be talking with Brother Sadat Anwar, a da'i based in Toronto, and asking him about his experiences giving da'wah in Canada and the advice he has for us in that regard. Brother Sadat, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Jazakallah for having me. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. Today, I, Yahya, will be interviewing you along with uh, brothers Haydar and Zaid. And uh, so to start off, when we mention the topic of da'wah, do any ayahs or hadiths come to mind? Uh, yes, so from uh, Surah Fusilat, uh, verse number 33, uh, which is, And who is better in speech than he who calls to Allah and does righteousness and says, Indeed, I am from amongst the Muslims. Um, so I think this verse uh, gives us something good to aspire to. We should uh, all try to, um, we should all aspire to be part of that group that calls to the way of Allah, because this is the verse in which Allah is, is uh, you know, praising those those very people, inshallah. inshallah. So to start off, um, tell us about your childhood. Like, were you practicing from the get-go? Like what sort of environment were you raised in? How was life? Uh, I'm assuming you were raised in Toronto. So how was life there back in the day? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, I, I I do like to mention, uh, even when I'm uh, talking to non-Muslims and doing dawah, I do like to throw it in there that I was born and raised in Toronto, Canada. And, uh, you know, what's, what's the reason uh, for that, right? It's, it's only so that people um, can, can better relate and understand uh, that, you know, I'm a product to some extent of this society as well, too. You know, I, I, I wasn't born in Mecca. I wasn't born in Medina. I wish I was, but that's not the case. Um, and so that's something I like to, to, to kind of throw out there and also to let young Muslims know that, um, like, it can be done. You know, we're now at the point where there are uncles like me, <laughs> maybe not very many, but there are some uh, uncles, hopefully young uncles like myself, who, who were actually born here, went through the system like they did, and so we have a better understanding uh, of what, uh, you know, the youth are going through today. Uh, so I went through a public uh, junior school, public junior high school or middle school, uh, public high school, uh, and then, of course, university after that. Um, but to, to answer your question, I was, I was born into, like, a pretty typical middle-class Pakistani-Canadian family. Um, and there's a lot of good aspects to that, but there's some negative aspects to that as well, too. And the negative aspect was that, like, back in the 70s, to be very honest with you, whether it was Pakistanis or Arabs in, in, uh, in Canada or in America, very few of us were praying five times a day, you know, to be quite honest with you. Very few of us. Very few of us were, very few of us were observing even uh, halal meat, you know. So, of course, we were not eating pork or drinking alcohol, alhamdulillah, any of that. 
I was a McDonald's kid, you know. Uh, I don't say that proudly. I'm just answering your question. I was a McDonald's kid. I grew up on McDonald's cheeseburgers and chicken McNuggets and all of that. Um, and it might be easy for you young guys to sit there and pass judgment on us, right? But remember, this was a time when we did not have all these halal fast food restaurants that you guys have. You know, we didn't have halal food fest, which we have here in, in Toronto now. Um, this is not to make excuses. This is just to kind of contextualize right. that practicing yeah. the deen was not as easy in the 70s or in the 80s as it is arguably now. Uh, yes, there's a lot of new challenges now that you guys are facing. Social media is a part of that. It can be a part of that fitna. Uh, but perhaps the antidote to the problem lies within the same thing. The antidote also perhaps lies in social media because there are good Islamic programs. There are good Islamic videos like you guys, mashallah, are aspiring to make now. And so, you know, if you want to find the good, you can find the good very easily now as well, too, on YouTube. Okay, so with that regard, why do you think things have changed? Like, uh, is it there's more masajid, more uh, exposure on social media and on the internet? Or what has led this to, to this sort of like perhaps revival or perhaps a greater interest in the deen? Yeah, so a combination of these things happened. Um, some of these events happened, uh, well, at least one of them happened even before I was born. So I understand that like, you know, the 1973 Arab oil embargo is something that kind of brought Islam and the Muslim world into the uh, news spotlight on the TV. Um, so people in the West were becoming more and more aware about Islam and, and the presence of Muslims. Uh, 1979, as you guys, I'm, I'm sure know, there was the famous uh, revolution there in Iran, you know, the Islamic revolution in Iran. So these things, good or bad, they brought more and more attention and awareness. And, and they brought more awareness to us Muslims as well, too. You know, they brought more awareness to us, to us as well, too. Um, the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. But yeah, the, the, I mean, obviously, uh, immigration uh, from the Muslim world increased um, in, in, in the 1990s, especially uh, lots of Muslims coming in, refugees and immigrants coming from many countries, from Somalia, like that. The, the, the immigration from Somalia changed the demographics in my area, in my part of Toronto, kind of changed the demographic, changed the demographics of the mosque. Um, so I think all of these things played a part into um, a growing awareness of Islam. And as more Muslims came in, we started seeing more and more hijabs. Uh, the mosques became more and more full, more and more packed. So I realized that, hey... I mean, I'm Muslim too. I think I'm supposed to be a part of this. I'm supposed to be a part of this process. I'm supposed to be part of this Juma prayer, right? Um, so I think these are our different variables and factors that came together. Um, and it's ongoing. Yeah, of course, you mentioned social media. I mean, that's playing a big part now. So for Muslims who want to connect, like now, even if you're in a small town in Canada where there's no Muslims, you can still connect with the Muslim community, right? You can mm -hmm. still... Uh, you can still watch live Egyptian news. You can watch live streams from Makkah Mukarrama, right? So social media has definitely played a big part as well. I'm kind of curious, brother. Like, how were you introduced to like Dawah? Was there like a person in your childhood that you that like did Dawah, and you kind of like kind of found a role model, and you got inspired to do the same thing, or? Yeah, is there this, like a particular reason? Yeah, yeah. Th this answer is so uh, conventional and so cliched that I, I actually challenge you guys to take a guess. I mean, I, I want to see how your generation relates and, and what you think. I mean, um, 
you know, what what, what do you think? Wh who do you think was that pivotal personality um, that uh, that might have introduced me to Dawa, made me interested in Dawa? Were they like a famous uh, pioneer sheikh sort of thing, or yeah, 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 yeah? You're along America? the right lines in North America. Uh, he wasn't from North America, actually. In South Africa. Africa? <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Okay, and then and then before that point in time, did you ever have a phase of rebellion where you were trying to go against the deen, or um, like in high school, especially in that environment with non-Muslims, or were you um clean, <laughs> clean to use that terminology from the get-go? Yeah, no, I, I mean, no, I, I would never put it as a rebellion against the deen. Like, alhamdulillah, from age fifteen onwards, I mean, before fifteen, very few people are very aware of their religion or their religious commitments. You know, things are improving now, alhamdulillah. But I'm just saying, again, at the time that I was uh, growing up, I, I, I don't know if any 13, 14 year old really knew much or was really aware of their religious commitments very much. So, but alhamdulillah from 15, 16 onwards, because the answer to your question was Sheikh Ahmad Didat, right? I'm sure you guys have noticed, like a lot of, a lot of guys from my generation who are interested in Dawah got introduced to that field through the debates of Sheikh Hamad Didat, right? Um, he's kind of like the Zakir Naik, you know, of that time. I yeah. guess even Zakir Naik now, mashallah, is getting elderly now as well, too. Uh, so, yeah, watching his debates made me very interested in Dawah. And so I became, like, you know, very aware of my Muslim identity at around age 15, 16, kind of very proud to be Muslim and very confident that Islam is the truth and it makes more sense than any other religion out there. Um, However, however, I was lacking in my practice. And I'm sure you've seen this many times as well. There are some Muslims who are very gung-ho about da'wah, very, mashallah, very zealous and enthusiastic about the deen. And, uh, you know, they would uh, stand up to defend their deen no matter what. But they're not praying themselves. Or they're not observing halal food themselves, right? Um, I'm sure you've seen this, you know, uh, there's ladies who, who will very passionately defend the hijab, right? But but they, they're not wearing hijab themselves. So, yeah, I was kind of in that phase from age 16 to, I don't know, maybe 25, maybe. Um, and then at age 25, uh, being around some good brothers, and this just testifies to the importance of suhba, which means companionship, right? Your, your friends, like who you hang out with. So at, at around age 25, alhamdulillah, I met some really good Muslim friends at University of Toronto, and they were praying regularly. You know, they were observing halal. You see what I'm saying? And so alhamdulillah, I just kind of gravitated uh, towards practicing the deen in that way. So, by the way, that, that just goes to show you that for most of us, um, it, it's not necessarily one speaker or one khutbah that's going to change your life, you know. It's not one sermon, it's not some guy on the street or one live stream that's going to change your life. But it's often like uh, prolonged exposure to good uh, uh, company, to good friends. Yeah, I think that also speaks true to many of us right now too. Because I think me and Yahya used to go to high school together and now we go to university together. So really kept us kind of strong in our faiths. So. Alhamdulillah. Yeah, it's it's really important, man. It's really important. You know, have friends who remind you of Allah. Yeah, yeah that's very true. Um, just for like maybe like to introduce like the concept of da'wah, how would you like define da'wah? Or like is there a proper definition for da'wah that 
you might know of. Um, I'm not entirely mm. sure. So it'd be nice to introduce to us and maybe to the viewers too. So, Well, look, I mean, uh, you know, maybe a scholar would be better positioned to give you a good technical definition mm -hmm. or a fiki definition. I understand from da'wah what you understand from da'wah, really, which is, you know, calling people to the path of Allah, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, sharing information about Islam with our non-Muslim neighbors, friends, colleagues, um, and of course, in many cases, uh, we have will have we we will have even non-practicing Muslim family, or non-practicing Muslim friends. Uh, so perhaps in some sense that is also dawa. You know, we're also inviting them or trying to influence them for the better. Mm -hmm. Maybe that maybe that would be called tabligh or something like that. But uh, so I understand from dawa is 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 inviting people to the path of Allah, right? And that word invite, I mean. Um, I, this is the basic stuff I'm repeating, but this is just perhaps a reminder for myself first and then for all of us is that if you reflect on that word like invitation, right? When you invite someone to your house, you, you do it in the nicest, polite way, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, when you guys invited me to come on this podcast, sent me a very nice, warm email. You know, I got a very nice greeting and all that. It made me want to come. So dawah to the deen, inviting to the deen has to be with that same uh, frame of mind, you know. I know we're going to be discussing this a bit later in the in the podcast, but I just thought I would mention that that it has to be done, uh, you know, obviously with wisdom uh, and with sweetness, and not in a harsh way. Uh, one example I heard, which was very nice uh, from an imam, is, you know, he asked the class, you know, what's your favorite food, right? So some people are saying pizza and some people are saying this. For me, chicken wings, right? Uh, biryani. So then he says, he says, would you accept the best biryani if somebody offered it to you, if they offered it to you in their shoe? You know, imagine putting the biryani, sticking the pizza slice in your winter boots and then offering it to your friend. Would anyone want to take that, right? So the moral is, right, the, the, the lesson here is that what we have is beautiful. What we have is nourishing, right? which is Islam. Uh, but if we package it the wrong way, if we make it look ugly, if we present it in a harsh or an ugly way, w then we can't blame people for not wanting to accept it, right? So we have to present it and package it in a, in a beautiful way as well. Mashallah, yeah, that's very true. So going from there, how would you say the experiences of giving dawah in Canada is? What are the challenges and limitations? Yeah, uh, I mean, it's the same challenges we, we face everywhere. Obviously, uh, we, we, we need to be confident. It goes without saying that all of us, my, myself, first and foremost, you know, we need to have more knowledge because as we have more knowledge, we will be more confident about providing answers to tough questions about Islam, right? Um, but since this is a Canadian podcast, uh, I'll mention something different, which is I think one of the unique uh, challenges perhaps to us uh, in Canada doing dawah uh, is twofold. I think it, it's twofold. And I think this is more particular to Canada, as I said. Maybe not necessarily England, right? Maybe not necessarily France. So one is that Canada is known uh, for having a polite culture, right? Uh, that's changing. I mean, in the big cities, in Toronto, it's a mishmash, everything's mixed up. But you know, stereotypically, uh, as you travel into smaller Canadian towns, people are not as outspoken as they might be in their American counterpart towns. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Um, yeah, people are not as loud or uh, you know as assertive about their political views. Just watch the news on TV, and you'll see the difference. Like watch two Canadians debating on CBC, having different opinions, and see how polite they are. And then change it to CNN, right? Um, it, it's it's like you sense th there's a difference in the tone and the way that they engage. So my point in bringing this up is that as Muslims, we want to be courteous and we want to, on some level, we want to integrate in a halal way. And we want to fit in with our surroundings. And so sometimes I think we shy away from doing dawah because we think that if I share something about my religion with my coworker or my neighbor or my non-Muslim friend, I'm somehow violating this unwritten Canadian rule that, you know, you shouldn't say anything that might hurt anyone's feelings. You shouldn't say anything that might make anyone uncomfortable, right? Um, but unfortunately, we, we, we can't be like that. Like the truth will make people uncomfortable at times, right? And so, uh, I, th I mean, clearly we do have an obligation to share our deen. And when we share our deen, inevitably, sometimes, uh, not purposely, but we will end up stepping on other people's toes sometimes, right? If I'm telling my Hindu friend that our main belief is la ilaha illallah, there is no God except the one God, except Allah. Th this will on some level make him uncomfortable, right? Uh, but it's just something that we have to do. And I feel especially when the other person has opened the door to the dawah, when it's your friend who's actually asking you about Islam, if not directly, indirectly, like, you know, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, why do you have to fast during Ramadan and uh, Heather? I mean, you know, why do Muslim women have to cover their head? So, so now that person has opened the door, like they've opened up the conversation, right? So now we should not shy away and say, well, you see, that's my culture, just like you have your own culture. We have our culture. No, come on, explain what Tawheed is. Explain why uh, we believe that there's a creator and why the creator has revealed laws, how these laws are beneficial to human society, right? Um, so sorry, this is one challenge. And then the other challenge is that in a way, um, Canadian Muslims are too well integrated into Canada. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that um, especially I think the Muslims who immigrated in the 60s, 70s and 80s, they were very highly skilled and highly educated uh, class of, of people, right? Uh, not that the Muslims after that are not, but again, it gets kind of mixed up after that. But certainly in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, the Muslims who came were highly skilled. Um, and so they did very well for themselves. And their children, the second gen generation, have done very well for themselves. They are now doctors, engineers, accountants, lawyers, on and on. And the challenge that that presents then is that when you're very well socially positioned, when you're very when you're well positioned in the society, you feel that you have more to lose. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, I, I for I don't say this in any, any kind of condescending way. That that's not my intention. But I'm I'm just explaining that if 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 my full time work is working at a Seven Eleven or a Tim Hortons or running a chicken and uh, fries shop or a pizza shop. I'm more likely to be vocal about my Islamic views. Uh, I'm less likely to hide my views on a whole number of issues, right? But if I'm a well-established lawyer, uh, if I'm a city councillor, right, at the city of Toronto, now am I sure I still want to go on this live stream? 
Am I sure I still want to go and do a public debate with a Christian or an atheist? I don't want my colleagues and the people around me to think I'm some kind of extremist. I have a lot to lose. I don't want to lose this job. You know, I don't want to lose my house. I don't want to lose my two cars. Do you, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So um, I think these are a couple of the challenges that uh, are kind of maybe unique to Canadian Muslims and uh, American Muslims as well, to, to North American Muslims. Do you think like that kind of pressure is almost like peer pressure like that we talk, that we as students kind of get amongst our friends as well? Like it's kind of similar type of pressure or do you think it's a lot bigger or? Yeah, that's that's a great question. That's a great question. I, I I think you're on the right track. I think definitely peer pressure doesn't stop. And you're right. Even when you're in your 30s and 40s and 50s, there's this natural desire to not want to be ostracized and you don't want to be seen as weird or different or strange, let alone as some kind of extremist, right? And so you want the acceptance of your peers, right? And if that's at the law firm or at the accounting firm or at your medical office, wherever it is that you work, uh, you will try to prove to them that you know you are no different than them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, but but that should not always be the case. I I think if we can articulate ourselves in an intelligent way, uh, in a balanced way, then I think people will appreciate where we have a different stance on something, uh, as long as we don't sound like nutcases in the way that we present our views. And the other thing is, as long as we continue to treat everybody fairly, right? Um, so as long as I continue to treat my Hindu, my atheist co-worker and my neighbors fairly uh, and justly, then I think they'll realize that, you know what, this guy having a different opinion on such and such an issue is not a big problem after all. You know, it's not a big problem after all. But yeah, the peer pressure continues, which is uh, a good reason why you should learn to deal with it early on in life, because it, it doesn't end with high school. It doesn't end with high school. Um, I think, you know, sometimes in life, uh, a disadvantage can actually end up being an advantage in the long run, if you know what I mean. So, for example, like the high school that I went to, there were a lot of racist uh, Italians, <laughs> uh, ironically, not like not Anglo white students so much. But there were a lot of racist uh, white Italians at that high school. Right. And um, that actually indirectly helped me in the long run. Because I didn't want to fit in with them. I didn't care to fit in with them. And if they made fun of the way I dressed or if they made the fun of my hairstyle or something like that, I, I just stopped caring. And that has helped me throughout life because I still think that same way now, right? I'm, I don't give in easily to peer pressure now either because I don't really care too much about what people say or what they think. So I think that's a good skill to develop early on, to develop a thick skin um, and not care. Again, I don't mean that in an irresponsible kind of way. I don't mean that in an extremist kind of way. But I mean, we hold on to our principles. If people can accept that, alhamdulillah. And if they don't, that's fine. I'm still going to stick to my principles. So with regards to those two points, uh, at least in sort of an implicit way, like in, in the schooling system elsewhere as well, on the news and social media, um, Canada being a secular country sort of pushes the notion that religion, po like politics, maybe even to a lesser extent, are things that stay in your home or at the mosque, at the temple, etc. And they're not something where you should really show that on the outside, like if you're at school, in your workplace. So I guess that's one of the, the things I, I would like to ask you regarding, like how do we address that? And as well, a lot of, a lot of times, perhaps um, even Muslim parents in Canada 
fear if their children are practicing to a great extent or like they're praying their prayers at school, they're uh, like some, in some cases growing a beard, uh, keeping a hijab, then they're worried that uh, perhaps they'll be discriminated against or perhaps their safety in some cases may even be at jeopardy. So like, how do we deal with these two issues? The first one being this implicit culture of keeping religion outside of the workplace and outside of school. And the second one being Muslim parents sort of uh, pressuring their kids into um, hiding or, or not really vocalizing their deen. Yeah, it, I mean, it seems to me, uh, it seems to me that there's kind of two models of secularism um in my mind you know there is there, there there's kind of the uh the canadian british american model of secularism where in theory in theory the state does not favor any one religion but the state is not anti-religion either per se uh in, in theory in theory they're not anti-religion per se uh and then there's the french model of secularism <laughs> which, which we all know French model of secularism is more anti-religion you know what I mean and that's like we can just we can barely tolerate your religion just keep it in your church we'll barely tolerate your religion but keep it in the mosque keep it in the synagogue don't bring it to work right and uh when I compare these two models of secularism I I, I uh, think that the, the the Canadian model is 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 better or more healthy. And what I mean by that, I'll explain what I mean by that is that I think it's far nicer. I I would like to believe. I would like to believe that I can get along with my Jewish colleague and my Christian colleague and my Sikh colleague without them having to pretend that they're not Sikh and they're not Jewish and they're not Christian. I mean, that's a pretty sad commentary if you think about it. Um, the French model of secularism is that I can get along with my Christian co-workers and my Jewish co-workers and my Hindu co-workers if they pretend not to be Jewish at the office, if they pretend not to be Hindu, if they, if they pretend not to be Christian, just hide that cross. Don't wear that cross. I don't want to see it. And I'll hide my Islam and then we can get along. That's kind of a sad, uh, in my mind, that's kind of a sad commentary or a sad way of approaching it. Why can't I get along with my Christian co-worker? And he wears his cross. And I have my beard and I pray at work. So at least in English Canada, this is the model of secularism that we have um, in theory. And so I, I think we should be thankful. You guys are in English Canada as well, too. So I, I think we fare better uh, and, and we have more freedom than, let's say, the people, the Muslims in France, or for that matter, in French Canada, <laughs> because in Quebec, as you guys know, it's different, right? Like yeah. wearing the hijab in provincial government buildings, th that to my knowledge is not allowed. Or for a Muslim teacher to wear the hijab in a public school in Quebec, from what I understand, th this is no longer allowed. So they are following basically their homeland, right? They are following the French model of secularism. So uh, I, I think we are generally, uh, uh, you know, we're generally fortunate, I think, to be in English Canada. Brothers, we just have to develop a bit, a bit more of a thicker skin, you know, just a bit more of a thicker skin. Okay, so my co-worker is looking at me funny. Okay, so what? Okay, so I'm praying in the park. By the way, I tried that in France, and, and sometimes they'll stop you. They'll stop you praying in public. Yeah. But think about it. In Canada, what a blessing. You can be at the park. It's a picnic in the summertime. And you can drop what you're doing and you can pray Salah. 
You can be at Niagara Falls and you can drop what you're doing and pray Salah. Just don't block the walkway, right? And so what if somebody looks at you funny, man? We just have to develop a thicker skin. Uh, I mean, I always say, and again, I, I don't mean this in a, in a condescending way or to put anyone down, but, but I'm just using other examples. Like there are people out there that they, they don't give two cents about what you think about them. They, they don't care about what we think about them. There's people out there on the street who have green hair. They've dyed their hair green. Honestly, do they care what you think about their green hair? Do they care what I think about their green hair? There's men holding hands. There's people, there's guys with rings through their noses and through their eyelashes and this and that. They, they don't care uh, what we think about them. So if we're doing something good, which is keeping your beard and praying at work when it's prayer time, uh, you know, not going to that Christmas party where they're serving alcohol. If we're doing what is good, morally good, you know, why should we be so concerned about somebody looking at us funny? So uh, I'm hoping that with the young generation, and especially, inshallah, in the second and third generation of Canadian Muslims, uh, we won't be as insecure as perhaps the first generation of Muslim immigrants was. That's true, inshallah. I think it's very true what you're saying, because like, I think it's also, like if, you, if we develop a thicker skin and like pray in public when we need to, it also kind of brings up like people's curiosity, you know? Because sometimes people are a bit curious, like they want to learn more about us. And in a way, that's also kind of da'wah. So, like, by doing these things in um, Yes, on, on in that public. point, uh, on that yeah. point, Haider, uh, just for your information, Haider, he always wears that cap. Well, like, even at school, every like, basically everywhere I see him. So I wanted to ask Haider, has someone ever asked you, like, why are you wearing that? Yeah, plenty of times, actually. And, like, it goes, brings up a really good conversation amongst, like, my colleagues, my friends, and... And we like we like have a like interreligious discussion, and it's really really nice. It opens up a nice conversation. Also, helps like my friends to also accept me a bit more whenever I need to, you know, reject their invitations to a party or to an alcohol. And it it helps a lot when you know it helps. It makes them understand a bit more because um, they're they kind of already know. Like it's not like unexpected. Like I don't hide it. Um, so, but yeah, like I said earlier, it's like. If we do these more stuff in more like publicly, it's also kind of it's also kind of like a way for us to do dawah because it helps people uh, see that we like we're disciplined in a way, or these are like our way of life. And if they're curious, it might bring up a really good discussion amongst your friends and peers. Yeah, no, and that that's a wonderful thing. So unfortunately for me, it's part time, you know, part time goofy <laughs> cap. But especially when I have short hair, I like to wear it, and as my hair grows longer, it's it's a bit more uh, difficult for me. But um, no, that's a beautiful thing because because you can be doing dawah, you know, 24-7 all the time. Every time you hold a door open for an old lady, uh, Heather, that you, you are creating a good impression about Muslims, right? Yeah. Um, whereas if I'm not wearing the, the cap or the topi or the kufi cap, I'm holding the door open for the old lady. She doesn't necessarily know that I'm a Muslim. You see what I mean? Uh, so it, it's I think it's a very positive thing to be visually muslim in that way because every time you do a good thing every time you uh you know i don't know help someone cross the street or something like this uh you are doing like a indirect uh, indirect uh passive dawah you know and the other thing is uh you know it, it makes you expect more from yourself too i don't know if you've noticed that yeah i do that yeah. i wear it i primarily wear it because of that so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like on Juma, like uh, when I wear it, even on the way to the mosque, and then after the mosque, I might go grocery shopping. I still have my my topi or my prayer cap on, 
Uh, and I'm I'm more I expect more from myself. Like I know that, like I should be even extra courteous right now, because I'm representing not just myself. I'm representing like all Muslim men right now in this moment, right? Yeah, so, yeah. sure. Yeah, that's why I hold such a high regard for like sisters who have the courage and bravery to wear their hijabis every day, because they do it like twenty four seven longer than. Like we could ever do so. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's 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 kind of like a it's it's also indirectly a sign of solidarity with our sisters as well too. You know. Um, so uh, exactly, exactly. When you walk into a, do you have a subway in a subway train? I mean, in yeah. uh, Calgary <laughs> subway system. Train. Yeah. So if you walk into a subway train or car, uh, and there's a Muslim hijabi there, this helps her feel a little bit more secure as well too, knowing that oh, this is a Muslim man in the same. Uh, subway car. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I had one more point, but I just, I just, I just forgot what that was. Oh yeah, yeah. Here's the other point: is that here's another great blessing of being visually Muslim and you know wearing that cap all the time is that you get more prayers made for you than than we do because I'm sure you get strangers saying assalamu alaikum to you all the time, right? <laughs> Sometimes, yeah. Well, it happens to me when I'm wearing the cap. There's more people uh, saying saying salam to me than usual because now they know for sure that I'm a Muslim. You see what I mean? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Every time someone says salam alaikum to you, that that is a prayer. That is a dua that they're making to Allah. That peace be upon you, right? Yeah, inshallah. So, changing the topic a bit, what do you find is the biggest reason Muslim youth go astray in Canada? Yeah, yeah. Again, so many variables. Uh, I mean, sometimes it starts with the parents. I, I don't want to shift the blame, uh, and it's not always the case. Sometimes the parents are very good, and they've done their part, and the kids still go astray. But in many cases that I've seen, uh, it did start with the parenting. You know what I mean? So the parents may not have taken the dean all that seriously, especially in the younger years of the child. And then they expect that the child should just instantly transform and uh, be serious about the deen themselves. So I'll give you an example, right? I'll give you an example. If you have a baby girl, right? And as she's growing up, you're, you're encouraging her dancing to Bollywood songs, right? And when she's copying her favorite Bollywood actresses dancing, you laugh and you take out the iPod camera, you take out your iPhone smartphone, you make a 10-second video, you send it to your relatives, everybody's, oh, that's so cute. It's cute at that age, right? When she's three, four, or five years old. But why is it that when she's 16 or 17, now suddenly, right, the whole idea of dancing and going to nightclubs and all that, no, 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 that's haram, we don't do that, that's not part of our deen. Yeah. But, you, but you're setting her on the wrong course, you see what I mean, in those initial years? So I think uh, I think parenting at an early age will make a big, big difference. I think that's part of it. And then there's other variables that are not so, th th there's not such an easy solution to them. So oftentimes you have immigrant parents from another country who simply, there's a cultural stumbling block. Like they just don't understand uh, the, the, the challenges that are, that are facing their children, right? So in that case, it doesn't mean you lose hope. Uh, but if there are such parents watching this live stream, that means that maybe you need to get your children a mentor, you know, from the masjid or connect them with a young imam who might better understand them, who might be able to better relate to them or better articulate Islam to them than, than you're able to do that, right? 
Uh, I mean, I would do that. I would do that. If if I moved to China, let's say, I, well, I wouldn't move to China, but if I moved to Japan, right? If I moved to Japan, um, and, and, and I have kids who are born there, by the time they're 15 or 16, you know, I might think I'm I'm amazing at dawah and I can teach them everything they need to know, but I might not be able to present it to them in a culturally relevant way. So I would be on the lookout. I would be on the search to connect them with a native Japanese Muslim, with an indigenous Japanese Muslim who was born and raised there, right? And who is able to relate to them, relate to their problems, joke with them in Japanese. You see what I mean? So I think we have to make the, the deen more culturally relevant to the youth. That That's another big part of it. So I had a yeah. follow-up with regards to that. Um, so sometimes you hear from the uh, shuyukh, you hear like this mentality of, oh, like a, a large portion of Muslim youth are going astray, leaving the deen. Um, we should be scared for our children and for future generations. All these new agendas are being pushed forward in schools and the education system and in popular culture. So they seem to promote this mentality of uh, hijrah as if the da'wah here, staying here and building a strong Muslim community in the future is an uphill battle, a struggle, perhaps not worth uh, all the risks and sacrifices, while others perhaps adopt a different mentality, which is, no, over here in Canada, this is a, this ha uh, there's a lot of untapped potential. Uh, in Canada, we have the liberty and freedom to share our da'wah, and perhaps it's not being done to the same level as other Western countries like England, for sure, or Australia or the United States. So what's your take on these two sorts of approaches? Yeah, this is bordering on fic, which I stay away from. But I'll just say that I respect both positions, you know, like like once upon a time, once upon a time, if somebody told me that they'd want to do hijra with their family and go back to the Muslim world, to be honest, I would kind of look down at that viewpoint. And I think this person is kind of ignorant or they're romanticizing the Muslim world. When they get there, they'll realize how many problems there are. They'll come running back. And by the way, we, we've known many families like this who packed up and left and went back to Pakistan. And after two, three years, to be honest, they came back. You know what I mean? Uh, even if they were able to readjust, their children oftentimes were not able to readjust. So I used to kind of look down at that, at that opinion. But to be honest with you, I respect, I respect that opinion now. Um, you know, the most important thing to us are our souls, our souls, right? Um, and our children's souls, our families. Uh, we, we, don't, we don't want to go to hell. We don't want to lose our deen. Um, so I, I respect that opinion. If, if, if somebody thinks they can actually move to a nice place like Malaysia or Turkey and uh, start a new life there, you know, good for you. But here's what I'll say. Um, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase Sheikh Yasser Qadi because he gave a really good uh, thought on this. I really like what, what, what he said. He said, if you're one of these Muslims that's really concerned about your deen, you're really concerned about your children's deen, and so you want to pack up and you want to do hijrah and go back to the Muslim world, you're the Muslim that we need to stay here in America. You're the Muslim that we need to stay here in America and Canada because you're concerned, you're cautious, you're being careful, right? You're taking the steps that you need to take to protect yourself and your family. It's the Muslims that are very comfortable who think, oh man, we're in paradise now, right? Those are the Muslims who it would have been better had they stayed in Pakistan, you know, had they stayed in Iran, had they stayed in Syria, they would have been, it would have been far better for them because they're already on their way to integrate, not integrating, assimilating now, 
they're already on their way to assimilating fully into the society, right? Um, so uh, I, I like what he said. I think there's some merit to what he said, that if you're one of those Muslims that's really, really concerned about your deen, good. You are the good, strong kind of Muslim that we need. You're the one that we need. Stay right here because we need Muslims like you here to make Islam grow, you know, in these lands. You see what I'm saying? But listen, man, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you something. Not many people talk about this. Let me let me share something kind of, you know, uh, uh, new with you, right? Is that the truth is, the truth is that all of the, uh, the, 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 you won't be happy to hear this, but I'm being straight with you. The truth is that all the previous waves of Muslim immigration that came to Canada and America, their grandchildren are gone. They're gone. It's finished. Islam is, is finished. You, you, believe this or not, this is the truth. So, look, you know, you were not the first generation of Muslims to immigrate here, or your parents were not, the, my parents were not the first generation of Muslims to immigrate here. There were Arab Lebanese Muslims who came to Canada even as early as the 1920s. There were Bosnian and Albanian Muslim communities, practicing, I mean, practicing Muslim communities that came to Canada in the 1950s and they built mosques. And some of those mosques are still running now. But you won't find any Albanians or Bosnians in those mosques, unfortunately, because their children and grandchildren are gone, completely assimilated into, into Canadian society. And the only reason those mosques are still running is because there's a new influx of Muslim immigrants who have come in from India, from Bangladesh, from West Africa, from Somalia, and they're keeping the mosque running. Alhamdulillah, the mosque is still running. But what happened to the grandchildren of those Albanians and Bosnians who came in the 1950s? You can't tell me they weren't practicing because they built mosques, right? Uh, in Edmonton, the early the 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 uh, this is not so far from you guys, I guess. It's West Canada in Alberta, right? The oldest mosque in Canada is in Edmonton. It was built in the 1920s. So now, when you go into that mosque today, wouldn't you expect to see a whole bunch of third generation Canadian Muslims who are the grandchildren of those Lebanese and Syrians who came? But you won't see them. So let that be a warning for us, right? Let that be a warning for us that the previous generations, uh, the previous waves of generation, uh, previous waves of Muslim immigrants that came, uh, uh, generally speaking, th th their grandchildren did not remain within Islam. They became completely assimilated. Now we now I don't want to sound completely pessimistic. We have a few advantages going for us. We have a few advantages for us. One is we have modern connections, like we have modern uh, social media connections, right? Uh, air travel has become cheaper than ever before. It's not so difficult to visit back to Egypt every year. It's not so difficult for those who can afford to. They can go to Umrah every few years. The previous generations of Muslims, they couldn't do that. The previous waves of Muslim immigrants couldn't do that, right? We can watch live satellite Muslim channels on the internet. We have Islamic conferences going now. There's larger numbers of Muslims here now. And another advantage uh, that some of us have, I'm not sure what all of your backgrounds are, but for those of us who are from an Asian or African background, right, which is most of uh, the Muslims who are coming now, uh, the, the dark skin might actually help as well too. And the reason I say that is because my children, even if they're born here and sp uh, speaking English from day one, they will never be as Canadian as a white Canadian. Like they will always stand out. They will always look a bit different. But the Lebanese and the Bosnian, the Albanian white Muslims who came here, their children just completely became white Canadian. Like nobody asked them where you're from. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. 
So anyhow, that, that's just something I wanted to share. It's very interesting, inshallah. I like how you like also mentioned like earlier, um, like for us to like keep this like generation like strong, like having like a really good mentor is something that we should like aspire to be um, or like, or aspire to have. And like, if we're like, let's say talking for ourselves, like if you want to be a good mentor, if you want to do, start getting involved in da'wah, like how would we, how would we go about it, you know? Yeah, I mean, um, in the past, it was always just uh, freelancing, meaning doing your own thing, right? That's what we all did. We all kind of did our own thing. Or we got together with a few like-minded friends and started, for example, if you're interested in street dawah, for example, that's how mm -hmm. we started here. A few friends coming together and starting street dawah. Uh, what you brothers are doing right now, what are you doing right now? You've come together, you've networked, you have a common interest, you've started a Muslim YouTube channel. So inshallah, this is going to grow and grow and grow, right? You're going to be networking, inshallah, with more and more people. Um, but also it can be done, mashallah, now even on an organizational level. This is an option that wasn't really there in the past. So now, for example, I don't know if they have some kind of representation in, in Calgary, but I know here in Toronto, there's AIRA Canada. Right, AIRA Islamic Education and Research Institute, right, or Academy. So they're based in the UK, but they have an actual physical office here now in, in Toronto, AIRA Canada. And regardless of whether they have a physical presence in Calgary or not, now you know there's online training now, right? There's online classes, online courses. So I would say uh, uh, try something like that, right? Uh, courses with AIRA Canada. And that's really something that will, will help uh, young people to get started you know, on that path. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So do you like with regards to um, what you were saying before about the grandsons of those first generations having completely left Islam for the most part? Do you think dawah in a similar fashion uh, we speak of when we talk about dawah to non-Muslims, like street dawah? Um, this approach would be the same for Muslims as well, or like what aspects do you think need to be incorporated? for those Muslim youth to um, to stay connected to the deen? Do you think it's about developing stronger Muslim communities, having programs Muslim youth are interested in? Or like, how do we give that solid foundation of Iman to those Muslim youth? Do you think, like, because perhaps even if you compare between someone going to high school in, say, Calgary or Toronto, who lives beside a mosque and they go to the mosque every week, perhaps every day, um, they would probably have a much greater connection to the deen than someone who lives a 30-minute drive from the mosque and they go once a month. So what, what, do you think, um, what do you think we should do with regards to Muslims specifically? And how does that contrast to the da'wah we give to non-Muslims? And like, what should the balance between these two be? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you, you, you hit it right on the head there. I think for us to even physically be in communities you know even physically for us to be in close proximity to the masjid i think that can be a game changer in in many many cases i think that can be a game changer um you know the the main islamic center that i usually attend here in toronto i won't mention the name but mashallah it's a good masjid and they have a good imam and they have some good programs but but the youth simply don't come the youth simply don't show up for those programs but why because that mosque is what I would call a destination mosque, meaning, as you put it, you know, you have to drive to get there, right? It's not close to any residential area. 
On the other hand, I know smaller mosques, which are not as well-funded, that don't have as many amenities. They don't even have a gymnasium and all this to have youth activities. But they are their programs, at least their lectures and things like that, they are better attended by the youth. Why? Because that mosque is, is not just uh, a destination mosque, but it's a neighborhood mosque. It's a neighborhood mosque. Most of the houses in that area are uh, inhabited by Muslim families. And so it's easy uh, for the teenagers and for the adults uh, to, to simply walk to the mosque. And it's natural that when you go to the mosque, you're going to bump into other teenagers. You're going to know other people, other kids on the street. Um, and so I, 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 think that, I, I think that's one of the, the answers. I, I definitely think that's one of the answers. So, yeah, if you're really, you know, you, you have children, you're concerned, you want to ingrain, ingrain them with Islamic values from a young age. I think it will be a big help to live in, in, in Muslim communities or close to the, to the masjid, close to the masjid. So when they're having a program, your kid is not relying on you. Well, you guys are all young yourself. I don't imagine you have teenager kids yet, but I'm just speaking to the general audience um, that these uh, teenager boys and girls don't have to rely on their parents for a ride to the mosque. You know what I mean? They can just say, okay, I'll, I'll walk five minutes, 10 minutes to the mosque. I think that makes a big difference. And then to respond to another aspect of your question, if I understood, if I understood your, your question uh, correctly, um, when, when I started Street Dawah here in Toronto, uh, like about 10 years ago when we started the Street Dawah here, um, at that time, you know, you go through phases. Even as an adult, you go through different phases. So at that time, if a Muslim came up to me to, to share some kind of problem that they're having or, you know, I've got a non-Muslim girlfriend. Of course, we're not supposed to have girlfriends, but th these are the kinds of things people bring to us, to the table. They come up and I've got a non-Muslim girlfriend and how do I tell her about Islam and this and that. I, I, used to, I used to think of that, unfortunately, I was wrong, but I used to think of that as such a waste of time. I'm like, man, in my head, I was thinking, I'm not here to talk to you, man. I'm, I want to talk with the non-Muslim. I want to give da'wah to the non-Muslim. So I used to really not kind of, you know, enjoy talking to the Muslims. I saw them as kind of like a waste of <laughs> my time uh, but then of course over time I realized how wrong I am I realized uh, so many Muslims are bringing their problems to you uh, that you know what like we are in need of a reminder first uh, we, we, we need to be uh, reminded as well too and there's Muslims who come up and they're smoking weed or they're part of a gang and we have to give them time we have to talk to them too so um, I, I'm just throwing this out there that one of the benefits of doing dawah is that whether you intend to or not, you will end up having some kind of positive influence on other Muslims as well. You see my point? You're going you're gonna to end up having a positive influence on, on other Muslims as well. Um, so uh, that, that's just something to keep in mind. There's no such thing as doing dawah exclusively to non-Muslims because Muslims will come to you. You know what I mean? Even now, this program that you're doing, like, you know, you, you will have Muslims emailing you at some point and saying, you know, can you connect me with this imam or that imam and throwing all kinds of questions at you, you know. What you said uh, reminds me of the verse in the Quran, inna dhikrat anfa'ul mu'mineen. The remembrance uh, benefits, benefits. 
the believers yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely so but yeah anyhow i i i think yeah living in a in a in a in a in a muslim neighborhood or at least in very close proximity to the masjid makes a difference right um i mean remember hijra by the, oh yeah we started this conversation where you were asking about hijra right hijra doesn't just have to be from one country to another country remember this hijra can be within the same land it can be within the same country so earlier on, I said, if I lived in French Canada, no doubt I'm doing hijra. <laughs> but hijra doesn't have to mean Malaysia or Turkey. I would do hijra to English Canada. You see what I mean? And uh, if the community is not big enough for you in Calgary, right, maybe you do hijra to Toronto, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I know when the Syrian refugees were coming a few years ago, um, I, I was talking with them and I was mixing with them because initially they were housed by the government in a hotel uh, close to the uh, Tariq Islamic Center. And so we got to meet a lot of them and talk with them. And then slowly, one by one, these families got resettled somewhere up north, like Barry um, and even past Barry Collingwood, little towns up there in the north. So I would advise these families, I would tell them, look, once you have the opportunity, <laughs> Uh, once you're kind of settled or established, you have the financial means to do it, please, brother, move to Mississauga, <laughs> move back to Toronto or the greater Toronto area, because it will be much better for your children. It will be much better for your children to be in a major city where we have large Islamic conferences, where we have a lot of masajid, you know, where we have a lot of Islamic teachers. So keep this in mind, right? Hijra doesn't mean it has to be a dramatic flight across the ocean. Hijra can be even within the same land. It can be within the same land. So what are the tools and knowledge we need to, you know, give Dawah correctly? Because we don't want to, like, mislead people or give them bad knowledge. So how do we make sure we don't do that? Yeah, so in in addition to just, like, a weekend course or a one-month course with Ira Canada or something like this, I think it goes without saying that the more Islamic knowledge we have, obviously the more it will benefit us in doing dawah, in responding to people's questions. Isn't that the case, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and I'm, in advi- I'm in need of my, my own advice here, right? But you asked me, so I'm, I'm, I'm saying that to enroll in fiqh classes, you know, to enroll in Arabic language classes, right? this would be a good thing because if... if it's just like social activism. There's a lot of Muslim social activism happening now in the West, but it's devoid of Islamic knowledge and wisdom and understanding. And so it can take the wrong direction sometimes, right? And so you're right. Dawah can be the same way too. That most of us uh, duat uh, on social media, myself included, myself included, don't have any traditional Islamic training. You know, I'm being honest. We don't have traditional Islamic training. So ideally, if we could marry the two, if we could bring together traditional Islamic knowledge along with the zeal and enthusiasm and skills of how to talk to people and to do dawah, that is the ideal. That is the ideal. So, you know, inshallah, inshallah, make dua. That's what I'm aiming for for my son, for example. You know what I mean? I would love for him one day, I would love for him to do alamiya studies, you know, to actually become an alim of the deen. But then what do you do with that Alamiya knowledge? Well, not just hide in the masjid, right? But actually go out, you know, and, and, and do the dawah and do the social activism. But it should be grounded. It should be anchored in Islamic knowledge. 
but so short answer is brothers just learn as 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 much as you can right just learn as much as you can uh because the more you learn the more it's going to come in handy when you're talking to non-muslims right mm -hmm. and um however however and this might connect to one of your future questions i forget i you know but uh at the same time uh we lay muslim i, I certainly for myself i am a lay muslim it doesn't mean that we should shy away from doing dawah either you know and the reality is the reality is that most of the questions that you'll be asked unless you're a debater on youtube unless you're doing formal debates generally speaking on the street level in the classroom level at the office level most of the questions that you ask uh, most of the questions that people ask you they're going to be the same like 10 questions they're going to be the same 10 12 15 questions again and again and again so they probably are not going to ask you about the thick of jewelry <laughs> you know they're probably not going to ask you about whether the idul adha udiya is is that a sunnah or is that wajib is it wajib in this madhab or is it is it sunnah which way around the average non-muslim is not going to ask you these questions the average muslim is going to ask you about what violence right jihad Right, so there's several verses that you just need to look at in the Quran to clarify. Uh, hijab. Why do women wear hijab? Uh, why can't you guys? Why, why can't you guys eat pork? Uh, and and you know why do you have to fast? Why does God want you to go hungry? Like th these are the same kinds of questions you'll get again and again. Uh, why is the Muslim world in a mess? I mean, like why is there a civil war happening in Syria, Iraq, or something like that? And you can decide on the best way to answer that. Right? You can decide on the best way to answer that. You can say, I don't know what's happening in Syria. I, I haven't studied Syrian politics or history. I can talk to you about Islam, right? Or if you know a little bit, bit about the situation there, then you can give them the answer. But my point is that even as lay people, we can, we can do dawah because it's the, it's the same set of questions usually that you're going to be asked about again and again and again. And by the time you've answered that question 10 times, you feel confident about it. You know, it's not a new thing. I'm sure, like, I can just take a guess. I'm sure all of you brothers, because you're interested in dawah, I'm sure you've, you've talked about Islam with some of your non-Muslim friends in the past. I'm sure at some point, all of you have been asked, you know, why can men have more than one wife, for example, right? So by the time you've answered that question, like 10 times, a dozen times, you become more and more confident in how to answer it. So it doesn't matter who you are, man. You, you, you know, you, you can do dawah. Hey, let, let, me, let me just add one more thing here. Uh, when we were doing street dawah a few years ago, there was an Indonesian sister that was joining us, and uh, like she she could not speak uh, English very fluently, and uh, and she was not able to answer most people's questions. But I'm telling you, she gave more shahadas than the rest of us. She gave more shahadas than the rest of us. There was just something about her ikhlas. And just her smile, and she just had a certain, mashallah, a certain spiritual nur or presence, a sincerity about her that drew people to her. And she was able to give shahada to, to so many people. And I was watching her thinking, you know, but I, I, I give better answers than she does, man. I, I've got better arguments than she does. But see, it's not just logical, right? It's not just about knowledge and information, right? It's also about ikhlas. Your akhlaq, meaning your etiquette, how you interact with people, all of these things come together.
Inshallah. That's interesting to know. I'm also from Indonesia, so. <laughs> oh, is that right? Uh, yeah, I'm from Indonesia. Mashallah, yeah. mashallah, mashallah. Very good. Very good. Yeah. Yeah, so, so with that point about uh, Dawah being more than just um, just the answers you give, the um, arguments, these intellectual arguments, what do you think the role of ibadah worship is with regards to a da'i? Because one thing I heard in the past is, but like when the prophet at the start of, um, like when he first received revelation, two of the first commands after Iqra, read, were stand up, get up in the night and pray and warn your people. So what's the connection between these two, giving da'wah and um, your personal ibadah, your personal worship and your personal connection with Allah? Yeah, great question and a good reminder, good reminder like to all of us. So, you know, obviously, like it's it, it, it's not absolutely fard. It's, I, don't, I don't think it's an individual obligation that you, you know, you have to tell your non-Muslim friends about Islam. You know, even though we feel that this is a moral imperative we should do, but technically speaking or legally speaking, I'm, I'm not convinced that it's an individual obligation that you must do it. But it is an individual obligation that you have to worship Allah, that you have to do your five daily prayers, that you have to abstain from the haram. So it's about priorities, right? It's about priorities. And I give you the example of how earlier on uh, in my teenage years, I, I didn't have that set of priorities, right? So I was defending Islam very passionately, you know what I mean? And talking about Islam and uh, sharing Ahmadidat videos with some of my non-Muslim friends in, in my high school class. And yet, if you were to ask me, Sadat, do you pray? Uh, I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't praying. So, yeah, definitely, man, we have to prioritize. And we have to remember that, you know, when we when we go into our graves, you know, the first question is not going to be, how many people did you convert to Islam? Or how many free Qur'ans did you give out? You know, not to take away from the beauty and importance of those things, but but that's not the first thing you're going to be asked about, right? So uh, we have to keep our prayers in order. And basically, we have to be spiritually anchored. Because if we're not spiritually anchored, we're not going to be emotionally anchored. And if we're not emotionally anchored, then we're not going to be very well positioned to do da'wah. Because to do da'wah, you have to have patience, right? You have to have sabr. You have to be ready to take abuse, man, sometimes. And maybe, I'm, maybe I'm drawing more on my experience of street da'wah. And, and da'wah doesn't have to mean street da'wah. But... When I use the example of street da'wah, man, you have to be ready to take some abuse. And it hurts even more when it comes from Muslims. It hurts even more when it comes from Muslims, man. The abuse that I've heard from some of the Iranians, like you, you, you have to have patience. Now, if you're not spiritually anchored, right? If you're not emotionally anchored in your deen, how easy is it to respond to that abuse with more abuse, right? Like how easy is it to do that? So just even for us to be emotionally, spiritually restrained, uh, it goes without saying that that we we should we should never forget about uh, our salah and our athkar and Quran, dhikr. All of that is 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 going to be very very important. Otherwise, it's a disaster, you know, waiting to happen. It's a disaster waiting to happen. I mean, there was one guy joining us for a while, and then later on we found out he was just picking up girls, right? He was just picking up girls. He was just taking girls' phone numbers. You know what I mean? Uh, so, it, it, yeah, that's a disaster waiting to happen. So we have to be spiritually anchored. And that's not a one-time thing, obviously. that That is a constant practice and observance. We always have to be uh, introspective and always reminding ourselves, right, of our priorities 
and always doing the dhikr of Allah. And, and inshallah, that will help us, you know, to attain that ikhlas that we need. So, how can we, like, um, when giving dawah, how do we connect to the Canadian demographic without, without uh, you know, compromising on the religion? So, how do we do that? Yeah, I mean, I th as I said before, I think um, if, if we, we we don't we should not water down the religion, right? We should not um, we should not try to change it in order to make it more palatable to the people. But at the same time, we still have to have an articulate and intelligent presentation of those points. If we can do that, if we can manage to do that, in my experience. Canadians will respect you even more, meaning the Canadian non-Muslims, they will respect you even more if you don't whitewash things, you know. So, uh, for example, jihad, jihad, right? Now, when some of our community leaders are, are asked about jihad, right, we, we've seen some of our spokespeople and leaders like completely sidestep that question sometimes, right? It happens sometimes. And they'll say, well, you see, jihad just means struggle. So... Uh, when I was logging onto this live stream, it took me a couple of minutes to properly connect. That was my jihad. Okay, that was my jihad. Or uh, environmental jihad. You know, yesterday there, I saw a Coke can on the street. I picked up the Coke can and I threw it into the, the garbage bin. This was my environmental jihad. Okay, look, no doubt, no doubt, there's many different kinds of struggle, of course. And there's spiritual struggle against your own nafs, of course, right? But I think, I'm of the opinion that we should not try to sidestep and, and whitewash the, the difficult questions. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, in our thick books, in our books of jurisprudence, jihad primarily is always referring to what, man? It's referring to fighting on the battlefield, right? So let's just tell people that when they ask us, like, we, you know, make that part of your answer and explain that jihad incorporates uh, physical fighting on the battlefield. However, however, this does not mean attacks against civilians this does not mean blowing up a, a bus or a train in new york city this doesn't mean kidnapping christian girls in nigeria and holding them hostage right that that's not jihad that truly is extremism and terrorism right but if muslims in some part of the world are picking up arms to defend their country against an invading country against an invading force i mean we would call that jihad and and that's a noble thing and that's a good thing and that's a virtuous thing and i don't make any apologies for that so when i've given this answer to people believe it or not uh like i mean 99% of the time they're completely fine with that because they see the logic in that i mean it's reasonable it's reasonable most human beings will understand that right um and other and, and there's other similar examples like i mean you know i won't do a deep dive into this topic cuz I don't want to throw you guys under the bus uh, for, under, for, during your very first live stream. But uh, things pertaining to gay marriage and LGBTQ and stuff like that, right? I've had, we've had gay people, we've had openly gay people come up uh, uh, to our dawah table and tell us, you know, I'm gay. What does your religion teach about homosexuality? So we explained to them, like not shouting at them, like we didn't have smoke coming out of our ears and all that, but we explained to them that, look, 
he, you know, we, we started with Tawheed. We believe in the Creator. We believe in revelation. We trust the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, right? And, and this is what our book teaches us. This is what our book teaches us, that, you know, gay marriage and this, this is not recognized uh, by God, right? So, yeah, we consider it to be a sin, right? We consider it to be sinful. But having said that, we are living under the laws of the land. We respect the laws of the land. And, you know, I'm not going to mistreat you and we are not advocating vigilante justice or anybody go up and beat you, harass you or anything like that. But if you're going to ask us about the act, we believe it's sinful. So I think this is a reasonable answer to give to people. And believe it or not, brothers, every time we gave this answer to, to gay people, like, like they were okay, they, they were fine with that. They were fine with that. Um, they, in fact, if anything, they probably respected that, you know what, this religion seems like a serious religion, you know. Uh, if there is true religion out there, this is probably what it looks like. Because these guys don't just compromise and change. And they don't just say what we want to hear. But they have principles and they stand by those principles. Mm -hmm. Now, mind you, maybe I should add that what helped us also was the fact that on the same street corner, you had a Christian guy with a megaphone saying homosexuals are going to hell. Right? So that probably <laughs> helped. That probably made us look more moderate and more reasonable, right? So he indirectly was helping us. I'm kind of happy he was there, right? But my point is, my point is that uh, if you give people honest answers, but present them in an academic way, in an articulate way, then most of the time, most of the time, people will respect that. They don't have to agree with it, but they will respect you, and and you know they're not going to try to force you uh, to 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 convert your viewpoint on that. And, uh, and, and and by the way, when I keep on saying this, articulate, intelligent, I I'm not making any claims to being that person who can articulately, intelligently present everything. No, half of the time, I'm just connecting them with the correct answer. I'm connecting them with other speakers. I'm connecting them to other books that have dealt with that topic. So if I'm asked about slavery in Islam, I can give a basic answer. But if they have more detailed questions... Now I'm not able to answer them to their satisfaction. So I connect them with another resource. I say, listen, you know what? There's a Muslim professor named Dr. Jonathan Brown. He wrote an entire book on Islam and slavery. It's available in the Toronto Public Library System. Why don't you check it out? Right? Why don't you check it out? Have a read. Right? So half of the time our job is just like kind of being a bridge and connecting mm -hmm. people to other resources, to other resources that might be of help to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so one, one thing I've noticed about you specifically compared to some of the other people giving da'wah is you always try to adopt like a polite tone, uh, try to come off as being eloquent and charismatic sort of with regards to what you're preaching. Do you think that's something that's learned? Do you think it's the Canadian in you? Like what do you think contributes primarily to that? Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't put it down to any moral virtue per se i I, th I think it's a cultural thing it, it is partly the, the the canadian thing um and then the other thing is if you're comparing to the brothers at speaker's corner like you know most of them have a lot more knowledge as well too and so with knowledge comes more confidence as i said earlier on so if i had more knowledge than i have maybe maybe i would be more assertive maybe i would come across as a bit more uh, debate oriented. So uh, it could just be my own shortcoming and not necessarily a moral virtue. But the other thing that I'll add is that like I actually lived in L London, England for three years and I was going to Speaker's Corner regularly before the cameras got there. I'm talking about before the cameras got there, before it was put up on YouTube. 
So uh, had you observed me in those years, I did at one point get very like gung-ho, like very animated, not, not, not rude, not impolite, but very, very animated, right? Like I sometimes get right now too, when I'm comfortable, I'm comfortable with you guys, right? So, um, so when you're there, you, you kind of, you, you get, a, you get affected by that environment. You get affected by that environment. I can tell you if any one of you brothers, you know, even if you went there for three, four or five years regularly, like you will be affected, uh, by the environment. So, so I, I, I don't, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, um, see one as being better than the other. I think like in a speaker's corner arena, it's a different context. It's, it's a different set of, uh, rules, right? Uh, of course, there are Islamic rules we always have to observe. We're not going to use bad language no matter what, right? We can't do that. Um, but uh, certainly, the debates there are more animated. But it would it would be a big mistake, of course, if we took that approach and we started doing that on the streets of Calgary with someone who's just asking you a basic question about Islam. He, he doesn't he doesn't need to be refuted. <laughs> he doesn't need to be destroyed. He's just asking you for an answer, right? But in the same way, in the same way, if we took our polite approach and took it to speaker's corner, th that could be a disaster as well. Because there are some people that require a firm response. There are some people that do need to be refuted, right? Um, so I think it's a good mix. I think we need, uh, I always say we need good cop, bad cop. Good cop, bad cop. Do you know what I'm talking about? Good cop, mm -hmm. bad cop? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you want to you wanna get the criminal to confess? You, you know, you need one cop to play really harsh and scare him. And then the good cop comes in and says, look, 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 let, let, come on, let's talk to me. Talk to me. I want to help you out here. So we, uh, and honestly, I've, I've tried to do this dynamic on the street as well, too. So when I go for our Sunday street dawah, um, if I notice that, that one of the brothers is getting very heated and very uh, whatever, irrit irritable and, and, and is getting very loud, I will step into that conversation and I will try to lower the tone and, and bring the volume down a bit and try to see if, this other person can be reasoned with. But I've done vice versa as well. I've done vice versa as well. I've seen uh, people talking to very soft brothers and kind of bullying them or bullying a Muslim sister, right? Um, and I've stepped in there and I've gone in harsh and I've gone in, you know, you know what I mean? I've gone in hard and it made the guy back down. It made the guy back down because sometimes you have to be firm. Sometimes you have to show strength, right? So, so it's all about knowing where and when, where and when. I think we have to be uh, flexible in that way. Yeah, it's sort of like it really depends on the context and you have to like respond yeah. to yeah. whatever the situation or circumstances. And when the Quran says to debate with wisdom, uh, that, 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 that is a part of wisdom to know what is your context and what is your situation, right? Yeah. So if, 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 if you're debating Hatun or Jay Smith at Speaker's Corner, um, th then, then our polite uh, Canadian thing, uh, no, uh, it, 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 that probably won't work in, in that context. But keep in mind, that's not the usual context. That's mm -hmm. not the usual context. The usual context is people just asking normal questions, you know. Yeah. So if you see this, I mean, look, I, I want something practical to come out of this live stream as well, too. So here's, here's a little simple, easy, practical tip, right? If you see on Twitter or on Facebook, Someone has posted an innocent question about Islam, but now they're getting hammered by the Muslims, right? Like maybe a Christian asked about polygamy. He didn't, he didn't phrase it in a rude way, 
he didn't say anything disrespectful about the Prophet He's just asking. And suddenly in the comments, everyone's bashing the Bible. I mean, just that that's a good time for you to step in. That's a good time for you to step in and give a good reasonable response or private message the person. Private message the person and say, you know, I apologize. I know some of the answers there were a bit abrupt or a bit rude. I would love to have a private chat with you. Are you open to having a Facebook video chat? Could we have a short chat? So step in, intervene, and try to uh, put out the fire when you can. Inshallah, that's a good advice. Just kind of curious, like when you do these like dawah and you do like and you like invite people to the call of Islam, especially with non-Muslims, and then they like decide to do shahadas. What's like what happens like after a shahad is like do you still like work with them or? To like help them with the dean and like introduce them to things and things, or is it like a certain sector of the mosque that deals with that? Or well, because what we're doing is again not in a very, uh, it's not in a very professional, organized way. As I said, it's really just a few friends mm-hmm. uh, and I who have you know come together to do this. So unfortunately, I have to be honest with you, brother. Right, that that is something that we are lacking in. You know, mm-hmm. the follow up is something that we're lacking in. And Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad put it very well. He said, "He said it's the postnatal care that is the problem, right? Yeah. Uh, the child is born, right? Okay, you got a new Muslim here, Alhamdulillah, right? But the postnatal care is like taking care of that newborn baby, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's where we're lacking. So, uh, but but certainly we do try. Like it it goes without saying that if you've given shahada to someone, at the very least, you know, take their email, take their WhatsApp number, give them your email address, and try to follow up." Um, but in some cases we followed up and there's, there's been no response from the other side, you know, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. So did they kind of relapse? Did they have a, a, um, some kind of second thoughts or, or, or doubts about it afterwards? Uh, but Alhamdulillah, in some cases they have responded and then we've connected them with other teachers who can take them farther. You know what I mean? Who can yeah. now, uh, uh, teach them the everyday Islam that they need to know. And then there's some cases where, actually, there's many cases where they tell us they already have a very good Muslim friend who's been telling them about Islam. Mm. When we give shahada, it usually the job is already done. Somebody has already told that person about Islam for two, three years, and they're they already like Islam. They've already been to the mosque. They've already joined even in a prayer just for the experience, just to taste the culture of it, right? Yeah. And what happens is, again, sometimes we are more uh, shy with our close friends than we are with complete strangers. Uh, th- this, this, uh, this applies to me as well, too. Um, so for me, it's easier to talk to a complete stranger about Islam than a non-Muslim who I've been friends with for a long time or than my neighbors. Mm-hmm. Because here I'm more concerned about not ruining that friendship or that relationship, right? Where someone on the street... Or someone at Speaker's Corner, it's like, I'm not going to see this guy ever again in my life. I may as well give him the full deal, give him the right, give him everything he needs to know. Uh, so, yeah, in many cases, when you're giving shahada to someone, they're, they're already convinced. Someone has already told them about Islam uh, for, for, for years, but they were just too shy to ask them to say the shahada. They didn't want to risk that friendship. You know what I mean? Yeah, they're yeah. giving them time, but they've been giving them too much time. It's been years now. So it's easy for us to step in then at the street level and say, hey, listen, like what's stopping you from becoming Muslim today, right? Like what are you afraid of? What are you going to lose? And uh, if they're okay with it, then we say, okay, go ahead, say the shahada, right? But anyhow, the reason I'm bringing this up is that in those cases, 
we, we didn't always feel the need to have to follow up with them. In those cases, I would often tell them, listen, this friend of yours who's been telling you about Islam for two, three years, go back to him, right? Or if it's a lady, go back to her and tell them you've become Muslim now. And now you want to learn how to pray. Now you want to learn how to pray, right? Yeah. So there's there's situations like that where people already have Muslim friends. And it might be better for them to learn in the initial phases from those friends. That's true. Before they move on to a proper uh, teacher. Yeah, that's very true. I also like the, how you mentioned, like, even after shahada, sometimes things don't go, like, right away. And, like, I've, like even, like, I've had instances where, like, Muslim, like, non-Muslim friends would ask about Islam and they were super interested. And then, but then they would, like, their parents or their peers don't approve of it. And then they, like, stop asking. Like, have you, has those instances ever come up um, or circumstances? Yeah, yeah, that, that happens all the time. So, like... Um... You know, I have a script ready for that situation because it has happened so many times. It has yeah, happened yeah. so many times that, oh man, my Hindu family, like my my Hindu parents hate Islam. Uh, like they would kick me out of the home if uh, I ever became a Muslim. So so my script is very simple. I, I think most of us know this already. I just remind them. Sometimes we overlook basic things. Their Muslim mm -hmm. friends may have overlooked these basic points. So I just mentioned to them that, look, there's no rule in Islam that I'm aware of that says that once you become a Muslim, you have to announce it to the world. You have to make a YouTube video of yourself becoming Muslim and you have to upload it, right? I'm not aware of any such rules. So if, if you think that you're going to face difficulty in the home and get kicked out, you can keep your Islam private, right? Keep it private for a while. You don't have to announce it to your parents, especially if you know that they hate Islam, right? Yeah. Or at least ease into it gradually, ease into it gradually. Just tell them you have a Muslim friend. Then they get used to that slowly, right? Then yeah, tell them, sure. uh, well, I'm reading the Quran. It's interesting. I don't just throw it at them overnight. I've become Muslim. You almost, you can't blame the parents almost for, for being really shocked and upset. So that's one thing I tell them. And then the other thing I think we should tell converts more often, and I think this awareness is growing now, is that like, look, you, you know, you, you don't have to change your name, right? Um, like, David is fine. It's it's a good name, you know. It's it's Nabi Dawood alayhi salam. You know, Michael is a good name. It's it's the name of an angel. You can you can remain Michael. You can remain a Muslim Michael. That's okay. Um, I heard Shabir Ali say something uh, years ago, which I liked. Um, I obviously I you know I don't agree with everything that he says, but but he he has some gems of wisdom. And uh, I I remember I saw uh, Brother Shabir Ali give uh, shahada to someone uh, at a mosque here in Toronto years back. Um, and uh, I think his name was Michael. Let's just say it was Michael, right? So he reminded him that, you know, you don't have to change your name. And the other thing is, it might even be better for the da'wah if, if, if you don't change your name. Mm -hmm. It might even be better because now that you're a Muslim Michael, every time you talk to another non-Muslim Michael, that non-Muslim Michael is going to look at you and think, like, you're a Michael like me. But, but but you're Muslim. You're a Michael like me, but you pray five times a day. So if you can do it, then like I can do it too. If you're a Michael who's a Muslim, I can be a Michael who's a Muslim. Do you see what I'm saying? So I think we should I think we should reduce these cultural stumbling blocks as much as we can to try to make it easy for new converts. You know, mm -hmm. as long as their name is not like some kind of mushrik name, it doesn't have sh connotations of shirk or something like that. If his name is Hercules or I don't know, Ganesh or something. Yeah, okay, you know, we're going to have to change your name. But uh, we, we, we don't have to do this in each and every case. I've seen shahadas where the uncles are hugging this new guy. 
and without consulting him, right? It'll be from today on, you are Muhammad Hassan. <laughs> like, did you did you ask the brother? Did you give him some options? Give him some options, right? Do you want to be Muhammad or Ali? Do you want to be uh, this or that? No, no, he just announces it, you know? You are Muhammad Hassan from today. <laughs> so, I like I, I mean, how would you like that? How would you like that, Zaid, if I said to you, from today, you are uh, John Smith from now on? You'd be like, no, man, I'm Zaid, right? I'm still the same guy, basically, right? So. Yeah. Mashallah, yeah, I like how you mentioned, like, and especially the earlier point, like, about keeping it private. Sometimes it is sort of necessary because even in, like, in the early, like, we go back, way back to the early stages of Islam. Like the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu would have private discussions with, um, and then the like Islam grew from a like a private sort of setting, and then it like as it grew bigger, it became more public. And like I like I really like that point, inshallah. Yeah, I mean, and also think about it. Once upon a time, Omar was a non-Muslim name, right? Yeah. Like once upon a time, Ali was a non-Muslim. Salman, it's a Farsi name. Salman was once upon a time was a non-Muslim name. It's just that all the Salmans that we meet today happen to be Muslim, pretty much. So, so today we think of Salman as a Muslim name. Uh, but it's not a name that the Prophet gave to Salman. It's not an Arabic name, but it's just, it's culturally, it's become a Muslim name. So instead of trying to make every Michael into a Hassan or an Ali, how about just let's aim to make every Michael into a Muslim. Imagine that. And then suddenly Michael will be a Muslim name. Suddenly, every time you meet someone named Michael, you'll think, oh, you're Muslim, right? Um, so, yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, I, mean, I mean, I'll just share an interesting story with you, you know, and th this should make us, um, help us to appreciate the challenges that some of these new converts go through. Um, th th there was, a, uh, there was a, a young lady convert to Islam coming from a Hindu background. And my wife and I invited her to join us for the RIS conference in Toronto. This was three, four years back. So she joined us and she benefited a lot and she enjoyed it very much. And at the RIS conference, I don't know if you've been, but there's a large conference hall, but there's also a bazaar area. And when you're going, the bazaar area, anyone can access for free, but the conference area, you have to have paid and bought the ticket and everything. So when you're going from the bazaar area into the conference area, you have to show them your tag. You know what I mean? Like your admission uh, bracelet around your mm -hmm. wrist. So we noticed, my wife and I noticed that we, we were spending part of the day with this new convert uh, uh, girl. And uh, whenever we were going into the conference area, she would take off her backpack and she would show the security, the bracelet, which was on her backpack. Like it wasn't on her hand. So I told my wife, like, it's, it's a waterproof bracelet and everything. Why doesn't she just keep it on her hand? Because throughout the whole three-day conference, she has to take her backpack off every time. And uh, then, then, then she, then she pointed it out to me. My wife said that it, it, because she has to hide it from her, from her Hindu parents, right? Like when she goes home, she can't keep that that bracelet on, right? Um, for for the whole weekend, she has to hide that. So I've heard of I've heard of like Sikh converts to Islam who had to pray like in their bathtub, in the washroom. I'm sure you guys have heard of similar stories. So mm -hmm. it's just a reminder of, of the great challenge that uh, converts have to go through. So why should we make their life harder? Like, like they're yeah. going through enough. Many of them are going through enough. So try to make things as easy as possible for them. You know? So you've referenced this a bit, but how much time do you spend giving dawah? And why don't you film 
much of it. Or how much time do I spend doing dawa? Yeah. Uh, for most of us, like it's it's a part time thing, right? For most of us, uh, maybe Ira has some like full time workers and things, but uh, for most of us freelancers like myself, like I'm just a brother like you, right? That's all it is, and uh, I do dawa on the side when I have time. So Sundays before the pandemic started, Sunday was our usual day. We would do street dawa at Young and Dundas in Toronto, which is like the busiest commercial intersection maybe in the whole country they're going to rename dundas now to something else so uh for politically correct reasons right the name is changing so it won't be dundas square anymore and um yeah i mean as you brothers might know i do the occasional live stream with uh, ef dawa with uh brothers hamza and imran abbas in the uk so we do that occasionally um I'm just trying to think of what I, I guess nowadays during the pandemic, it's been more online stuff. It's been more online mm -hmm. responding to people on Facebook and stuff like that. So would it be correct to say a lot of like the street that way you give is not filmed? And if so, is there a reason for that? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we just don't really have as many volunteers and enthusiasts for Dawa as you do in the UK, you know, in the UK, they're real go-getters, you know, they're real go-getters. Uh, and they just jump, they, they pounce on every opportunity to do dawah or to be part of it, to, to partake in the blessings of it, right? Uh, so I just never really had like a volunteer, anyone that would volunteer to uh, film or record those conversations. Because there have been, over the years, some interesting conversations. I don't think they'll be as interesting like on the level of Speaker's Corner. <laughs> they're not as dramatic and they're not as detailed uh, uh, debates as you see there. But nonetheless, there, there are some there are some good conversations that we've had, and recently there's a brother uh, who who uh, who just volunteered his services very recently. So let's see, maybe now when we start up the Sunday Dawa, maybe we will record some of those uh, conversations. And I do have a couple of videos that I'll be uploading soon to my ch YouTube channel, that Canadian brother. Um, but I have a backlog of videos, and so it. it you know, it might be a little while, but there's a couple of videos coming up where we're having conversations on the street, you know. Looking forward to that. Inshallah, yeah. Inshallah. Just uh, going back to like this topic, like when we, like I, I know you mentioned like you're, you're pretty much just like, you know, one of us, like a, bro like a brother who's, you know, trying to do what's right or trying to call people to Islam. But like, you know, like some people try to create this, like division between, you know, when like, I feel like they, they would say, like, oh, I don't think I have the right to do dawah because I'm a layman Muslim. I don't practice enough. Um, it, that should be the role of the dais or whatever. Do you think that the vision, like, is true or, or like, how popular do you think it is? Or do you think it's something that we should try to kind of hmm. water, like, water down or, like, decrease? Um, the expectations? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I remember you, uh, someone asked this question earlier on too, and, and we didn't really get to answering that. So, I mean, there's different ways of answering that. Um, if, if, if we all waited until we became ulama uh, before we did any kind of dawah or e even, pu even public dawah, uh, think about all the dawah that would not have gotten done, right? Mm -hmm. At Speaker's Corner. I mean, what's happening there now is, is affecting English speaking Muslims around the world. Right, it's it's gone global, right? Um, uh, Sheikh Ahmadidat, as as knowledgeable as he was, as much as we respect him as our elder and someone very knowledgeable, at the end of the day, he was not a traditionally trained alim, 
and he would acknowledge that. He, he's not a traditionally trained alim. Uh, Zakir Naik, uh, again, phenomenal memory. <laughs> we all wish we had his memory. Phenomenal memory and very charismatic, but, but not a traditionally trained alim. Uh, so if everyone took that approach, uh, then uh, imagine how much uh, uh, da'wah would not have gotten done. How much da'wah would not have gotten done. And by the way, uh, just a few days ago, I was listening to a podcast uh, by Dr. Shadi Al-Masri. And in that podcast, Dr. Shadi actually said uh, that he was having a conversation with another sheikh. And he actually asked him, he said, sheikh, how come it is, uh, why, why is it the case that uh, people who are not ulama are usually more effective at dawah than uh, people who are trained scholars. So now, now this is a scholar acknowledging this fact. This is a scholar acknowledging this fact, Dr. Shadi al-Misri. And his conclusion was, his own conclusion was that uh, perhaps sometimes they, they become too academic or too um, concerned about the evidences of a certain position. And the, and the common person on the street is not necessarily interested in all of that. The common person on the street is not always interested in all of that. So I think we we, we, we have uh, uh, skills and, and knowledge that we can use. Um, but of course, you're right. You're right. We don't want to step out of line. We don't want to step out of our lane. We don't want to misrepresent the deen and say something that is uh, irresponsible. So the simple answer to that is say what you are sure of. And, and don't say anything that doesn't have any precedent behind it. That doesn't have any precedent behind it. So in other words, if what you're saying, if your answer that you're giving to someone, I mean, this is my own approach. Not everyone will agree with me either, right? But this is my approach, is that if the answer that you're giving, if that answer is an acceptable answer, you know that's an acceptable answer in the Hanafi school, then you're safe, man. You're, you're not saying something crazy. You're not saying something crazy or haram, right? If the answer that you're giving, you are sure that that is the position in the Maliki school, right? That, for example, um, dogs are not considered impure or the saliva of a dog. Let, let's say you have a non-Muslim asking you that, look, I want to become a Muslim, but I have a pet dog. I can't get rid of him. I've lived with him for 10 years. He's my family. I'll be depressed if I get rid of him. So if you know that in the Maliki school, uh, the saliva of a dog is not considered impure, then I don't think you're saying anything crazy or irresponsible here. You can tell that brother, you can tell that fellow with some confidence, say, hey, listen, become a Muslim. It's okay. In the Maliki school, it's not a problem. Even if you kept that dog, it would still be okay, right? So try to say things that have some precedent behind it, not mm -hmm. something that is completely new or yeah. out of your imagination completely. And if you're not sure, then say you're not sure. Like it happens to me. Sometimes I'll say, look, mm -hmm. this is what I think the answer is. I'm not 100% sure, you know? Check it, verify it, or take my email. We'll we'll follow up later on. We'll follow up on this and confirm this, right? So th there's ways around that. There's ways around that, you know, as long as you don't speak out of turn in, in that way. A and again, I remind you, I remind you of that Indonesian sister, may Allah bless her, right? Like, I'm pretty sure that that she she had less knowledge about Islam than 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 us. I, I'm pretty sure about that. And even if I'm wrong. Uh, she simply did not have the English language skills to be able to communicate what she knows. And yet she gave more shahadas. Yet she gave more shahadas than the rest of our team. Um, so ikhlas and I think good etiquette. Good etiquette you know, plays a big role in this. And, and if you don't know all the answers, it's okay, man. It's okay. 
it doesn't have to be for a debate video from speaker's corner. Like just off camera, you're doing dawah. Somebody asks you a question you don't know the answer to. It's okay to say you don't know the answer. Again, in most cases, uh, people will actually re respect you for that. They'll actually respect that, okay, if you don't know, then you don't want to speak on that subject. Oh, fine, I respect that. So it's okay, you know. Yeah, so in this society where, like, um, it's really easy to get caught up with first schools, uh, university, working a nine-to-five job, um, all these uh, materialistic-oriented <clears throat> things, like uh, it's often termed the rat race in, in corporate culture. Um, like, how can we find the time to seek knowledge, focus on personal worship, personal ibadah, um, go to the masjid, attend halaqahs, and then give dawah as well. Like, how do we strike that balance and prevent ourselves from getting sucked into all these um, things pulling from our attention? And this would be especially harder for people who have families. Uh, they need to take care of their kids. They need. They have a lot of commitments. What do you think is a solution? There's only so many hours in a week. How do you find time for everything? Yeah. Well, I mean. You know, in my in my case, it does help that my wife is 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 interested in dawah as well. You know, and 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 she participates in dawah as well. So that's a big help. So if if any of you brothers are not married yet, maybe that's something to consider, right? Like maybe that's one of the things you can add to the list. You know, somewhere below, uh, very beautiful. Underneath that, somewhere you put interested in dawah, right? So at least she's sympathetic to you, even if she's not participating and not in a public kind of way. But she understands and she's sympathetic that you you do this live stream, whatever, once a week or once a month. She's sympathetic. She appreciates. She understands the importance of the work that you're doing. So that, 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 that's one tip that if, if, if you're not um, if you're not married already, then obviously factor that in, factor that in. And the same thing applies for sisters, right? Who want to who want to study, who want to study Islam, who want to take a class at the mosque. I mean, obviously, they should try to marry a man. Who, who is sympathetic and, 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 and who agrees that that's a good thing to do, right? Uh, then the other thing is, like, remember, we shouldn't have an all-or-nothing approach, right? All-or-nothing approach. So when I started my uh, YouTube channel, I knew that I, I am not going to be one of those guys that's uploading every two days and commenting on every single issue that happens out there in the world. Mashallah, there's some people that can do that. There's some people that can do that. But I knew that I don't have the energy and I don't have the time most of all, I don't have the time to be uploading a video every three days. So, uh, but my solution was not that, okay, therefore I am not going to do a YouTube channel because I can't upload every three days. And uh, on top of that, I'm not going to be, uh, I'm not going to be sectarian and be attacking other Muslims, uh, speakers and things. Everyone knows that's the way to get subscribers fast. That's the way to get viewers fast. So, so I knew I'm not going to be attacking uh, other Muslims. So this is going to be a pretty small channel, but that's okay. You know, uh, if I can upload something even once a month, then I will do that, but I will do it consistently. Inshallah, I will do it consistently. So if you go through the videos on my channel, you'll see that I average sometimes two videos per month and sometimes just one video per month, but at least it's something consistent, right? So don't put like uh, unrealistic expectations on yourself, right? Uh, when you say that, uh, how will you have time to study? Well, what does study mean? Does study mean two hours every day? Um, can you do one hour a week, right? Can you do a one hour a week and actually stick to it 
and not give up. And imagine how that's going to add up over the years, right? Uh, and here's another practical tip for not just you young guys, but e even people my age now, right? Is like, how about just like turning off social media, right? I know it's easier said than done, but just fast, fast from your smartphone for one day, fast from your uh, smartphone from one day. You'll have so much time, you won't know what to do with it, right? Because we're always complaining about time. Honestly, I mean, you'll have so much time, you won't know what to do with it, right? So just like... Fast from your smartphone, man. I mean, just even one day. Say on Fridays, I'm not checking Facebook. I'm not checking YouTube comments. I'm not checking Twitter. I'm not checking uh, WhatsApp or nothing. Friday, I'm fasting from social media. And trust me, you will have time to recite Surah, uh, surah Al-Kahf on Friday. Definitely, you will have time to do that. You'll have time to send salawat, right, on Friday if, you, if you're fasting from social media. So social media is a real distraction, man, and it's just distracting us. All of us on some level, myself included, right? It's distracting us from a lot better things that we could be doing. Yeah. There's like a term for that thing. Even the non-Muslims also like very acknowledge the fact that they're, we need to take breaks from like screens and stuff like that. So I think it's like digital detox or something like that. Mm -hmm. Having like a whole day for yourself where mm -hmm. you do everything that doesn't involve like technology or whatever. You go outside, get some exercise, um, make your own food, go cook or whatever. Um, but yeah, in our case would be like read some Quran. Um, even like exercise, if we do, if we have the right intentions, it's... I, I, I was just going to mention exercise. I was just going to mention exercise. Like it's summertime, man. Just go for a walk. You know, go yeah. for a walk. You know, um, and and listen to a lecture. That's what I do. I I, I noticed uh, that that when I was exercising, um, I had to choose between exercising or reading at home or studying or something like that. And um, you know, I'm not very good with technology. So it, it was just recently that I bought an MP3 player and I and I realized that, hey, I can just uh, like listen to a lecture while I'm out jogging or working out or something like that. So so now I'm getting the exercise and I'm also learning something, you know, from the lecture that I'm listening to. So it, it can be done, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so then <clears throat> I think we've perhaps asked most of the questions we were intending to ask. Um, perhaps if you have any closing remarks, anything, any advice you'd give to Muslim youth, any, like if, if you were to advise the, uh, 20 year old Sadat, what would you tell him? That sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Uh, yeah. I mean, uh, just, uh, you know, continue on this path inshallah and, 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 and just mentally prep yourself and train yourself that you want to be in this for the long run. Um, because unfortunately, again, what, what, what's often happening in Canada, because mashallah, we are doing well. Education-wise, we are doing well. Uh, Career-wise, most of us Canadian Muslims, we are doing well. University degree-wise, we are doing well. But that doing well can sometimes be our undoing spiritually uh, sometimes, you see. So what often has even happened at the dawah table is that you have people coming for a few years and they gain some experience. And they're getting good at dawah. Uh, and just as they're getting good at dawah, that's when they leave. Because now they got married or now they got a new job or whatnot. So we never have like the experienced brothers staying on, you know. So uh, just tell yourselves that you want to stay on this long term. You want to stay in this for the long course. Uh, not just now, but you want to be doing this in 10 years from now, in 20 years from now. Uh, when you have some white hairs, you know, in, in, in that beard. 
uh, imagine how much experience you'll have and how much more you can benefit people out there, right? Um, so that's one thing. And uh, and since this was a discussion about dawah, there's there's of course the uh, hadith which I don't have in front of me right now, but there's the hadith about you know bringing one person to Islam. Uh, is better than you know receiving ten red camels. You guys have heard this hadith, yeah. And uh, and a lot of the cool imams here in Toronto will of course explain that hadith as being something like ten Mercedes cars, right? Uh, because ten red camels was something very unique and yeah. uh, uh, expensive and desired back in seventh century Arabia. So they give this kind of cool analogy and say it's kind of like you winning ten Mercedes cars right now. How happy would you be? You know, how overjoyed would you be? Uh, me, I know nothing about cars. <laughs> I, I don't really care about cars, so I, I'm more interested in the ten red camels than the ten Mercedes because I, I, you know, I'm just don't really know much about cars. But the point is, the the, the real point and the real spirit of that hadith is that uh, it will be an immense reward for us. There will be an immense reward for us. And we'll be over the moon and we will be overjoyed, inshallah, if we helped even one person come to Islam, right? And remember, that can be done in stages as well too, right? Sometimes you give a person a nudge and then the next Muslim gives that person a nudge. And then it's some third guy somewhere down the road that might be giving shahada to that person. So um, if if this is the deen of, of, of haq, if this is the true religion, this is what I'll leave you with. If this is the true religion, which it is, then it's more than just a culture. It's more than just a culture, right? It's not just a case of, hey, I'll eat my Pakistani food. That's good for me. I'm comfortable with that. And brother Haider can eat his Indonesian food because that's good for him. He's comfortable. No, that's culture, man. That's food. That's not how we deal with religion. If this religion is the truth, then we have a moral obligation to share it with people, to share it with our neighbors, right? To not hide it. Uh, to to share it with our neighbors and uh, let's be optimistic let's be positive and let's aim big you know I uh, I, I had a, a very good friend at university and he asked me uh, Sadat uh, you know what's your plan for the next five years or ten years I forget what my answer was I probably didn't have an answer but I asked him I said well what's your plan for the next uh, ten years and he looked at me very seriously right He's not a crazy guy. He's not a crazy eccentric guy, highly intelligent guy. He looked at me very seriously. He said, Sadat, I'm thinking about how to bring 30 million Canadians to Islam. Yeah. So I laughed at the time. I laughed. But he didn't. He was serious, right? And what I learned from that is, man, you got to aim big. You know, like, let's, let's dream. Let's have a vision. It's not going to come true unless we dare to dream, unless we have that vision first, right? So have a big vision. Aim big. And then, inshallah, we'll accomplish something. Even if we don't accomplish that objective, we would have accomplished something. So let's aim 30 million Canadians. We want to bring them to Islam, right? And at the end of the day, if we only brought five or six, alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah, right? How many red camels is that going to be, right? So aim big, aim big. You guys are in Calgary, right? Yeah. yeah. Do you know about uh, 20 years back, uh, I mailed a, a Quran to Bret Hart. You know Bret the Hitman Hart, the wrestler? <laughs> Do you guys know him or are you too young? Bret Hart. Oh, WWE. He's one of Calgary's most famous uh, uh, you know, exports, cultural exports. Look him up, Bret Hart. But my point is, let's aim big, right? Whether it's Wayne Gretzky, you know, the Wayne Gretzky or celebrities, big media people in Canada. Let's try to contact them, right? Let's try to contact them, send them information about Islam. See, are, would, would any of them be interested to come onto your show? You never know. You'll, yeah. you'll never know until you try, right? 
So aim big, and inshallah, may Allah, you know, enable us to do some good work, and may He accept it from us, and may Allah bless you guys uh, in your podcast, and Jazakallah for having me, and uh, I, I pray that Allah puts great blessings into your project. Yeah, thanks, yeah, thanks a lot for thanks joining so us. Yeah, it was a pleasure hosting you, and uh, to conclude this episode, we ask Allah to accept it from all of us and Amen. to bless you and your da'wah and all your affairs. Until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Take care.